Bethany, and he's going to stay for a while perform maybe one of the greatest miracles that he ever performed in the raising. Bethany from across Jordan into Bethany, and he's going to stay for a while perform maybe one of the greatest miracles that he ever performed in the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And when this happened, this was the key to the, to the, the conflict that began at the end. This was one of the key things that caused the Sadducees and the Pharisees to join with the Roman government, the Roman officials, all of them together plotting to take the life of Jesus. And so with that in mind, we'll begin to start. It's, it's a good place to start if you're here for the first time. The one thing that I found about the Gospel of John is that you never get in at a place where you can't find yourself. If you don't start at the first chapter, if you start in the middle, you're still at a unique starting place. And I, I don't know of any other place that's quite like this. So don't worry if this is your first time. We'll just begin uh, to live that last period of time with Jesus. And I think as a result of it, as John said, all this has been written so you will believe, so that you might believe. And I think what you'll find every single Tuesday when we open these pages of Scripture is something that's going to cause you to believe, something that's going to cause your eyes, the eyes of your heart to be opened up in a way they never have been before, light to be shine, you know, shining on those words in your own heart so that you can see more clearly. And as a result of that, we pray that every single person who comes here will come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. That's the whole point and purpose of the whole thing. If there's one person in this group who is not a born-again Christian and doesn't have the assurance of their salvation, we want that to come out of this. And that's the only reason we're here. We're not here for any other reason. And that born-again Christians can have victory, can really have victory in their lives. That's what it's all about. We had that in the last chapter. Jesus came not only to give us life, salvation, to give us life out in eternity, but he came to give us the most abundant of lives right here and now. And we need this, every one of us. So what I want John to do so he can feel free to go back and get to whatever he has to do is we'll turn out all the lights and he's going to explain something of the tomb, uh, Lazarus, so you'll have that in your mind. Okay, okay. So you've got kind of an idea. There's two chambers uh, in Lazarus' tomb, in most of the tombs at that time. This is uh, from the outside here, the kind of uh, caves, they use a building to the side of the cave. Uh, the, the entrance is here, and you go down the steps, and there's an outer chamber here. And this was kind of a, the morning chamber that people went to. And then from this chamber, right back on the other side of the stairs, is this, this right here is this part. Uh, there's a, a the little hole that you had to crawl under and through to get to the place where they put the bodies in here. And there's a little window here that uh, they had carved out of the rock so that they, you could view the body as you come to mourn and in this area here. And you, you could stand there and uh, view the body. And then there's, you know, like brick, uh, it was carved out, places to sit and everything else in this morning chamber but you can also view the body it's just one area that we could all view it but it was just you had to crawl up under there mm -hmm. i'll give you claustrophobia and you did that you yes, crawled i didn't crawl up under there i, I, did crawl up under there. I, st I, st I peeked through the window <laughs> 
to tell you just a little bit of something about this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that you, you'll need to know. And the most insight, we really have very little insight into the person, Lazarus, except that he was raised from the dead. But there's, there's no place that tells of any place of responsibility, responsibility that he had. Uh, we can almost assume that he was the younger of the three. He was the younger brother. But it tells us something about Martha and about Mary, more about Mary than about any of the other three. So turn to Luke 10, and let me give you some insight into the two women. And I think we'll really be interested in this because I feel like we'll find ourselves in one of these two women. And it probably won't take you long to recognize yourself. Starting in the 38th verse, it says, While they were on their way, Jesus came to a village where a woman named Martha made him welcome in her home. Now, here's the first personality. Here's Martha. And she was apparently the older one, and she was the housekeeper. She was, it probably was her home. She probably owned the home. And she was the one who would go and open the door and say, Jesus, come in. I want you to be welcome. I have prepared all this for you. I want you to come in and rest and just be at ease here in our home. You're welcome. Now, I want you to notice that and I make a particular point of emphasizing the fact that they made him welcome there because very few people did. He was rejected, despised, and rejected by men. And so for somebody to have a home he could go into and know he could just take off his sandals and, and put up his feet and relax just thrills my soul. And that's the way our homes ought to be, especially for traveling, especially in the case of traveling ministers. We should always have a home open and ready. They should never have to be stuck off in a motel somewhere. While they're here, our homes should be open to them, and we should gladly receive these servants of God into our homes. Give them something. Don't put them on a spot. Don't make them still have to sit up rigidly and talk. You know, let them let the hair down. Let them feel at home. Let them make them feel like they're a part of your family. And that's just a special, special kind of ministry for each one of us. All right, these were the kind of people these were. Their home was open. Their, their, Jesus knew he was welcome. He knew he could go in there and just get away from the crowd. And sometimes it describes the crowd as smothering him. He was constantly in the midst, midst of people just clamoring around him and almost smothering him. And most of the time it was... Um, adverse sort of criticism that he was having to put up with. But when he came to this house, he knew that he was welcome. He would have some peace. He'd have some rest. And he took advantage of it every chance he had. The scripture tells us this was his headquarters. You know, when he was in the Jerusalem area, Bethany is just two miles from Jerusalem. You have to go, if you go off the hill, Jerusalem's on a hill. And if you go down the Valley Kedron and up the Mount of Olives, very close to each other, up the Mount of Olives, when you get on the other side of the Mount of Olives, you're in Bethany. So as the crow flies... You know, it's just no distance at all. But usually they didn't go down and over the hill unless you were walking. Now we have to go around, you know, a, a highway, a road, and it's longer to get there than that. But Jesus would have walked down the valley and over the Mount of Olives, would have probably stopped there, prayed over Jerusalem or something, and then gone on to the home. And when he got there, he just could really relax, and I love them for that. Uh, she had a sister. You notice that in Luke's gospel, he always mentions Martha first. This was, he, he was a practical man. Luke was the practical historian, the one with, John was, was totally different. He was the one who lifts us to the heights of the spiritual, which is very interesting. Because she, had, Martha had a sister, Mary, who seated herself at the Lord's feet and stayed there listening to his words. Three times Mary's mentioned, and every time she's at the feet of the Lord. 
Oh, begin to identify with one of these two, because I think they're here for a reason. I think they're here to show us two different women, two different sets of women, and, and says something to our hearts about the fact that, that it's not an either-or. You know, I mean, it's not a one or the other. We shouldn't be all one way or all the other way, but there should be a little Mary in each one of us and a little Martha in each one of us. If, and I'll go into that a little later. But anyway, she was seated at the Lord's feet and stayed there listening to his word. She could not get enough of what he had to say to her. I mean, whatever he had to share, she didn't want to miss a single word of it. And Martha was just, now Martha was distracted by her many tasks. She's that one who's just busy all the time. She's running in 90 different directions. She's going so hard, cleaning the house, fixing the food. You know, she never has time to sit at his feet. You know? And all of it in the name of duty, that she's missing out. Oh, she's missing out on, on the thing that would have caused her tremendous peace in the midst of the crisis that's going to come up. She's missing out on. And you'll notice that she came, here's the result of a person who's always busy about task. And we work ourselves to death sometimes. And we, we leave off the time of meditation and this, the quiet time of just being at the feet of the Lord, you know, listening to him, studying, praying. Uh, she was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and said, Lord, do, not, do you not care that my sister has left me in here to do all the work by myself? Does that grumbling against her sister? Going in there protesting to the Lord, grumbling against the sister. I'm left to cook. I'm left to wash the dishes. She is just doing nothing but sitting in there absorbing spiritual things. Okay, she says, and she's, she's a good one. I can see Martha is domineering. Oh, boy. She takes the bull by the horn, and it doesn't matter if it's the Lord. She says, tell her, <laughs> telling Jesus what to tell Mary. You tell her to come in and lend me a hand. And she was going to get that thing settled in a hurry, but the Lord didn't answer what she, the Lord didn't say, Mary, get up. Get up from my feet. Stop listening to what I have to say. You go in there and start cooking. I need a big, you see, the Lord would have rather had a peanut butter sandwich than a full-course dinner if it meant that somebody would listen to the bread of life. And there's, there's our greatest mistake in the whole world, is that we think somehow that we have to miss out on the, the gems in the spiritual life because we have to do all this, so many meals a day, just a such and such, and such kind of meal. And I remember when, when I, before I became a Christian, one of the times in a Sunday school class that I screamed at a teacher. And when I say screamed, I mean, I, I really said, I don't believe that. I mean, I just stood up and said, I don't believe that, was in this passage of Scripture. Because my mother was the one who did the cooking for all the relatives who went to church. And that, oh, that gagged me. I couldn't stand that. They would go off and sit and sing and pray. And my mother was at home cooking for the whole brood. And they would come home all satisfied spiritually and stuff themselves on my mother's feet. And she would, you know, she was so satisfied to do this. And she was wrong. But when that teacher said, nobody should escape, nobody should neglect their worship of the Lord, Bible teaching, no one should neglect this, even when they say, I've got to do the cooking for everybody else. Your family would rather have you there with them in the house of the Lord than to come home to a seven-course meal. And I said, that's not true. Oh, I, I mean, I really, I took issue with her. But you know, every time I took issue with that woman, I found out a little bit later on when I'd go digging for it that she was right. She was right. 
when you look back on it now, you would give anything in the world if my mother had had what she needed that would have come out of some of those worship experiences when the chips were down. So if you're the one who thinks, you know, you've got to be so busy about preparing for everybody that you get those kids ready on Sunday morning and send them to church and you stay at home and cook for everybody, that's wrong. That's very wrong. That family needs to be together in the house of the Lord and they need it together to be growing in Him. And it'd be much better to give them a peanut butter sandwich and be together. All right, so she said, and here's what the Lord answers. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, can't you almost see his exasperation with her? I, I really think he must have thought, oh, you poor darling. You are so busy with things. You're missing out on the whole meat of the whole issue. You're fretting and fussing about so many things. Can't you just hear him? I can just hear him saying that to her. Martha, Martha, you are fretting and fussing about so many things. But one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. The part that, that's what he said. The part that Mary is just, and he shall not be taken away from her. I'm not going to make her get up and go in there and start clambering around in a kitchen when she needs to take advantage of this short time I have left here. The time was so short. And Martha was going to miss out on all that she was going to need because she was so busy doing tasks. Now, let me just hasten to say, because um, I think Mary would have been the one who could have stayed in bed all day on Monday and studied. So it didn't take you long to realize who I identify with. But before I go any further, I want to hasten to say that I really believe, and there are places that enforce it, I really believe it's not one or the other. You see, some of us, We'll just pray and read our Bibles and study our Bibles and go and let our families live in pig pens. And the Lord is not pleased with that. Not one bit. There's a happy medium in there somewhere. There's a time. There's a time to keep that house uh, like it should be kept so our husbands come in and they're thrilled to come home to a well-kept, well-managed home and a, a lovely wife waiting for them and all these things. That's important. That's very important. But all of that to the exclusion of that private time we need as women, as wives and mothers, that private time of study and worship and meditation and coming together on a Tuesday morning to stay home from a Bible study like this and clean the house is wrong. It's wrong. The Lord gives us so many hours in a day. And if we manage that according to his time, to his plan for us, if we manage that in his strength, we're going to be where the, the food is being handed out, the spiritual food is being handed out. We're going to be there. We're going to be learning. We're going to be growing. We're going to go home. We're going to do the housework in double time because the hearts are going to be full. And with all the study and all the things that I do, I have never felt that the Lord gave me a license to neglect my family or gave me a license to let my family live in a pig pen. But he's given me, the more he gives me to do, the more strength he gives me, and the more it seems that he gives me a way to get everything done. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Nobody goes lacking, and especially not me. I mean, I don't go lacking in any of these areas. So I want you to get that, and I want you to really hang on to that and hear what he said to her when he said, Martha, don't be so busy about things that you miss out on the most important thing. Now, we come over to the uh, Martha, the, the one who loved the action, couldn't sit still, hyperactive. And Mary, the one who was, like I mentioned earlier about Debbie and me, we could just sit still and listen for a long time. Spiritual things. Um, in the beginning of the 11th chapter, it says, There was a man named Lazarus who had fallen ill. <clears throat> and the, 
the context here is that he was had been ill for quite some time and it was a serious illness an illness unto death his home was at Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha do you remember in Luke's gospel he said the house it was Martha's house it's Mary's village I like that. I really like that because, see, sometimes we keep ourselves in the house just doing things in the house. Nobody but our household ever hears anything from us as far as our testimony is concerned. But Mary must have had so much to share because of what she had learned at the feet of Jesus until her influence was felt out in the community, the whole village. It just hit me, the thought hit me, wouldn't you love for God to be saying something and, and say, um, that Huntsville, you know, Rita's town. Wouldn't you, love, wouldn't you love that? Have you ever thought about that? And call your name out as an individual and say, I think when I think of that community, I think of her or him. Wouldn't you love that? Have you ever thought about that? Well, that's what he said about Mary. He said, in, through the scripture, the village of Mary, Mary's village, and her sister Martha. Martha's still back there doing all that. <laughs> this Mary, whose brother Lazarus has fallen ill, was the woman who anointed the Lord with ointment. In chapter, chapter 12, we'll see that, that account of where, again, she's found at his feet anointing his feet and wiping it with her hair and you'll hear Judas screaming. Somebody's always screaming when somebody wants to devour the spiritual. There's always somebody going to be screaming about uh, the fact that they are wasting their time or they're fanatics or something. Alright, the sisters sent a message. The two of them together sent a message to him. Sir, you should know that your friend lies ill. Tremendous respect. A great friend. Lord, your translation may have Lord. Lord, they were believers. Lord, you should know that your friend lies ill. And that's all they told him. They didn't say, come running in a hurry. However, later on when he comes, they asked, this is in their question, they, they asked, why didn't you come, you know, if you had been here. But when they sent the message, all they felt that was needed to say to him was, sir, your friend, the one you love. And they used the love filio, the friend, the one you love with emotion, the one you love with affection. This friend, this, this dear friend of yours lies ill. Now, when we hear that somebody, a good friend of ours, is ill, what do we do? All you feel like you have to do is let your, your closest friend know, and you know they're going to be there. You know they're going to be there, and you know they're going to minister whatever need you have. It was like in World War uh, I, an account was given of, of these two close buddies. And they were out on the battlefield, and one was uh, struck uh, by a bullet out in what they called no man's land. It was between the trenches, and he couldn't get back to safety. And he lay there for quite some time, and the friend made his way at the risk of his own life out to where he was. And when he got there and he was over him, he saw his face, all this man said, but I knew you would come. And that's kind of what, what is here in this, what they're saying to Jesus in the note. Your friend is ill. We know you'll come. You know, we don't have to tell you to come. We know you'll come in response to, to just the fact that he's ill. And all the way through here, you're going to find the fact that, that Jesus really cares when you're ill. I mean, when there's sickness, when there's death, he just cares so much. And we're going to see the heart of God just unfold in these pages, in this account. Maybe that's the reason it's in here. This is the only gospel this account's included in. It's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's only in John. But what a precious, precious portion of scripture to be included to show us how much he cares when we're sick. How much he cares when members of our family are going through serious kinds of, of illnesses. And then how much he cares when, when there's death in our family. Cares even to the point of tears. And we'll really get a lot of that. All right. The message said, oh, Lord, you, 
you should know that your friend lies ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, this illness will not end in death. That didn't mean that he was not going to die. When he got the message, Jesus knew everything, and Lazarus was already dead when the message got to him. So it didn't mean that he would not die a physical death, but it will not end in death. You see the difference? That's not the end of the story. The fact that he's going to die is not the end of it. There's a tremendous, tremendous thing that you're going to experience through this, this illness and through this death. You're going to see God work in such a miraculous way until it's going to be staggering to those who see, to the family and those around, when you see how Lord, the Lord is going to work through, in and through it. All right, this illness will not end in death. It's come for the glory of God to bring glory to the Son of God. To almost two different things he's saying there. Glory to God in that the people around here who see it might believe. And this is what came out of it. Remember the whole Gospel of John was written that we might believe. So to bring glory to God in that those around would see God and see his power and, and believe on him because of it would bring glory to the Son of God. And if you recall all the way through John's Gospel, every time he talks about the Lord being glorified, he's speaking of his crucifixion. He was glorified in the crucifixion. And so the second part of this would say to bring all of this will bring glory to the Son of God because it would end according to the timetable of God. It would end in the crucifixion of Jesus. This, like I said earlier, earlier was the temple, the two things that caused the, the very end, the, the plot to thicken so that they took his life. All right, when he was crucified, that was not the end. That was the glorification of Jesus in the resurrection, the power of God in the resurrection. I was about to come to a, a conclusion, it looked like in an earthly sense, but in a spiritual sense, it was the very beginning, the very beginning of new life for all of us who would believe. And therefore, and remember the therefore, he said, this has come, all of this is happening, all this is going to happen. He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. After hearing of his illness, Jesus waited for two days in the place where he was because he loved them. When we, when we have prayers, we offer up a prayer to God. We want the answer right now. We want it to be just what we want it to be. And we all know that sometimes he says, yes, all our prayers are answered. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes wait. Wait just a little while. Wait a while. And we don't like the waits. We don't like the no's. You know, in the end, we find out that he knows best. He really always knows best. And we have to all confess that. When we look back on things, we always know that he knows best. But in this case, it looked like he was saying, wait. Because this was a prayer when they said, come, your, your, friend, I mean, your friend is ill. And they let him know that his friend was ill. This was in the form of a prayer, really. And they needed an answer. They knew that everything they needed was in Jesus. They knew that he could do all that was going to be needed to be done in the healing of Lazarus or, the, or whatever. They knew that the, that the one person they could call on was Jesus. But they thought it had to be done right then. And Jesus said, because he loved them. Because he loved them. He waited two days. So sometimes the waits are, are the same love that, that the yeses are. After this, he said to his disciples, um, let us go back to Judea. And Rabbi, his disciples said, it's not long since the Jews there were wanting to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus replied, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone can walk in the daytime without stumbling because he sees the light of this world. But if he walks after nightfall, he stumbles because the light fails him. So many things could be included in this particular portion. The, the, looking at it from the fleshly point of view, the human point of view, all the disciples could see was let's don't go back there where the last time we were there they were picking up stones ready to stone you. Now you know when you go back there they had sense enough to know that if he went back to Jerusalem he was going to be killed. 
And they also, I'm sure, had sense enough to know that if they were with him, they were going to get it also. But what he's saying, what they're saying, let's go in another direction. Let's go back up to Galilee. Let's go back up to Capernaum. Let's go back up where the people are friendly, where they receive what you're saying with open hearts. Let's go back to Samaria, anywhere except Jerusalem, where they want to stone you, where they want to kill you. And Jesus says there are 12 hours of daylight. And, and when you put it in the context of all that's happening, you know he's not literally talking about 12 hours. He's talking about there, there's a certain length of time a completed length of time. I have so much time, Jesus would be saying, he said this all the way through, I have so much time allotted me here on earth. And when that time comes to an end, that's it. And I must keep every appointment that's been given to me to keep by God the Father. Everything that he's given me to do, I must do. That was the whole, whole point and purpose of his life, was to be submissive to the will of the Father, to do exactly what the Father wanted him to do. And to go in another direction would be outside the will of the Father, see. And you stay in the daylight when you're in the will of God. When you're in the will of God, the light's there. And you can see without stumbling. But if you begin to go in an opposite direction because you think that's the way it ought to be, not where you know God's leading you, but where you think you ought to be, you're in darkness and you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and you're going to hurt. It's going to be nothing but hurt and heartache for you. But Jesus is saying here, all of us have a limited amount of time. All of us have so much time in a day. We have so much time in a lifetime. Whatever needs to be done needs to be done quickly. Whatever needs to be done needs to be done now. And don't put it off. And what he's saying to us, whether it's salvation, whether it's as far as the conversion experience is concerned, you hear, you know what he said you have to do in order to be born again. He said you must receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. You must confess your sins. You must believe in your heart that Jesus has said in his word that he, if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive. And he not only forgives, he forgets them. He washes them away as far as the east is from the west, as deep as the deepest sea. And you've got to believe that. And you do what he says you, for you to do. You act on what you know is right while the time, while there's light, while, during that period of time that's allotted you, because you never know from one day to the next whether you'll have another day. And sometimes we say, oh, you shouldn't talk like that. You shouldn't say things that are going to scare people. But that's all the way through here. Now is the appointed time. Uh, this day you have life and the next day judgment. And all the way through, you find this being just spelled out so clearly until if we miss it, we may miss out on the thing that's going to be the part and parcel of our 12 hours, our life. While light's on it, take advantage of it. While the light's there, you walk in the will of God. And you do what you know that he wants you to do, whether it's in accepting him initially as your personal savior. If that's what it is, do it today. Do it today while the light's still there. Don't go stepping out into a, uh, um, an avenue where there's darkness, where you'll stumble, where you'll fall. Stay in the light. Stay where you know God wants you to be. Do what he wants you to do while there's daylight. And that's what he's saying here. I've got to go this way. I've got to go to Bethany. I've got to meet Lazarus. I've got to, to the power of God has got to be activated in and through what I'm about to do so that Lazarus can be raised from the dead so that a message can be taught. And three things to remember. There were only three times recorded in, in the Gospels where somebody was raised from the dead. And one time it was the little girl. You remember the little girl, Jairus' daughter? And, and he, somebody, I think it was Ironside, I'm not real sure, gave a beautiful kind of spiritual insight into these three resurrection experiences. And by the way, resurrection, they were not really resurrected. To be resurrected means to, to be raised to life, to never die again. 
So Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first one to literally be resurrected because he will never die again a physical death. But the other uh, two, Jairus' daughter and the son of the widow, Nain, were raised from the dead. They were resuscitated. There's the difference. They were raised back to life, but they died a physical death again, see. They didn't live forever, so they were not really resurrected. All right, so in, in these three cases, he says it gives a picture of, of all of it, where we are as far as the invitation of Christ to come and to receive life. See, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's clearly taught all the way through the scriptures. We are dead in our, in our trespasses and sins. And so here's the picture of a little girl. And like the Lord comes to her and says, little girl, rise up. And he says it so sweetly. And the, the, uh, it says there tenderly the way he said it, to a child, he gives the invitation in a very tender kind of way. He says to them, you know, they haven't experienced or they're not aware of so much terrible, horrible sin, but he says to them, come, I want to give you life. And the invitation is so tender and just what a child needs and they hear and they respond to it and they come to life. You know, they're given new life, the same as an older person is. And so there's an example of how a child, a young person, can hear that there's life. And even in, in his death, he can be given life. The son, the widow of Nain's son, he must have been a teenager because his mother was following along behind. And the scripture says that when Jesus, in the case of the little girl, you remember life had just left her. You know, she just breathed her life's breath when Jesus brought her back to life. And then in the case of the son, there was a funeral procession. They were on their way to the tomb to bury him, and they buried them immediately, like on the first day of their death, so because of the climate over there. All right, well, in this case, there was the funeral procession, and Jesus came upon this, and he spoke, and he told the young man to come, you know, to rise up. To, he touched the casket or whatever they had back then, and he told him to rise up. And then the scripture says he gave him back to his mother. You remember that account? He returned him to his mother. And that's an interesting thing he brought out there because he said many a teenager is wayward, gets away, rebels against family, breaks a mother's heart or a father's heart or something. And it's like he's saying there, these, I love these so much, these young people, these teenagers, so much young men and women. And I can give you life when you're dead in your trespasses and sins. I want to give you life. And I want you to give, to give you back to your parents and lighten the load of their hearts. Can you imagine how that mother felt when she got that son back? Oh, the load must have been lifted up. It's no different from when a child is so rebellious at God's heart and break his parents' heart, and then he comes back to the Lord, and there's new, a new life that he's given. Why, the same load is lifted off. So it's a beautiful picture there. And then in the case of Lazarus, here's an adult. And in this case, it wasn't immediately after the death. It was four days later. Four days later, and there's significance in almost everything, in that the Jewish thought was that for three days in the tomb, for three days, the spirit and the soul hovered around the body, hoping to get back in. And after three days, on the fourth day, the spirit and soul left, because they knew there was no hope. After the fourth day, it was decaying and rotten, and there was no hope to get back in. So there was a reason why Jesus waited four days. He didn't want any question in any skeptic's mind that he had just, the soul and spirit had just returned to his body, and he came back out, see? And that's what they would have said if it had been the first, second, or third days. But on the fourth day, you had nothing to say except this was a miracle manifesting the power of God through his son. And so with all that in mind, in Lazarus, after four days, it was like he was saying, all right, an adult, here's what happens to us. We have been dead in trespasses and sins for so long, we stink. <laughs> we just plain old stink. We're just rotten. We've gone so long, we're just rotten. 
But he says that same love is for you. It's for the little girl and for the young teenager. It's for the older person who's gone for so long without this. I want to give you life. I want to give you life, too. I want to raise you from the dead and give you life again. So I don't know whether you see that or not, but you know, in, the, in those three, since there were only three, it's interesting to me that there were three different age groups and they fit so beautifully together to teach a spiritual lesson about nobody is, nobody's gone too far. Nobody's so young. And when they're young enough to understand, let them come to Jesus. When, you t when you've gotten to an age where you think you're beyond hope, Come to Jesus. That's what he's saying all the way in and through this. He can meet every need of our lives, from salvation to keeping us through our lives. All right. So he says, um, our friend Lazarus, after saying this, he added, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I shall go and wake him. The disciples said, Master, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. And here's one of those conversations he always has with them where he says something. They don't understand him. Nobody ever understood what he said the first time. It's amazing. We, don't, we aren't any better now. We read something, we say, oh, I don't, and we go through all this elaborate thing to say, oh, I don't understand this, you know. But he always was very patient with them, and he would take what he said. Didn't he, when he said you were sleeping, all the way through Old and New Testament, it referred to death as sleeping, you know. It's a, a state of sleep. We still say, oh, we look at somebody in a casket, and we say, don't they look like they're sleeping? You know, we still use that same verb to describe how a person seems in, in their death. All right, then Jesus spoke out plainly, and he said, Lazarus is dead. And here's one of the places, skeptics are always coming along saying, oh, well, he didn't really raise Lazarus back from the dead. He was just sleeping. He was just in a coma. Now, maybe they could have said that about the little girl. Maybe they could have said that about the teenager. It hadn't been that long within the course of the day. But four days later, he wasn't in a coma. And nobody believed for a minute back then that he was in a coma at that point. And then Jesus makes it clear. He doesn't say he's just sleeping. He says, Lazarus is dead. And that can't be any clearer. It can't be any clearer than Lazarus is dead. I'm glad not to have been here, Jesus says. It will be for your good and for the good of your faith. But let us go to him. And then somebody speaks out. Do you know how Peter's always the first one to speak out? Peter must not have been here this day. That's all I've got to say. If Thomas had a chance to get in a word, Peter must have been out doing something else. But Thomas answers. Thomas the doubter. Thomas, I have renewed respect for him because whether he said the right thing or not, he had the courage to, to at least say, well, listen to what he said. He said, Thomas called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He may not have understood what was going to happen. He may not have had full significance of what was about to happen there at that experience and then in the cross experience. But at least he said, let's go with him. And if they kill him, I want to die with him. And I like that. That's courageous. He may have been a doubter at times, but he must have been a very brave man to have been the one lone voice that spoke up and said, let's go with him. Let's keep him company to the end. All right, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been four days in the tomb. And Bethany was just under two miles from Jerusalem. And many of the people had come from the city to Martha and Mary to condole with them over the brother's death. As soon as she heard that Jesus was on his way, Martha went to meet him while Mary stayed at home. Now, the, um, the, you need to know a little something about, we need 15 extra minutes at least. Uh, you need to know something about the funeral processions or what happened in the homes back then when somebody died. For seven days, or the first day they died, they got them ready real quickly. 
to put them in the tomb because of the fact that the climate was such that they would begin to stink in a hurry. And so they would prepare them in the linen wrap, you know, wrap them very carefully. They must have wrapped Lazarus' legs separately because he came out walking with separate wrappings. All right, then when they would take them off from the house, uh, the house became a place of deep mourning for seven days. And while you were in that seven days, after the funeral procession, you'd gone to the, the cave or to the tomb, uh, the mourners, everybody who was a friend or an acquaintance, for miles would feel that it was their duty to come and support this family in this situation. All right, so they would line up on both sides, and the chief mourners would go through, and they'd go into the tomb, and they would go into the outer chamber, and they would wail and weep. And the, the description here is always horrible weeping and wailing. Have you ever been to a, a country funeral? They still do that a lot of times. You know, just horrible, horrible wailing. All right, so this is the kind of, you, if you've got that picture in mind, that's kind of what you had there, but in mass. All right, then when they would come out of there, they would go back to the house, and they would stay for seven days. You were not supposed to leave the house. Martha went around against uh, the conventions by coming out to meet Jesus where he was. She was supposed to stay in the house. Mary did what she was supposed to do. All right, so... When they would come back in for seven days, it, uh, while the body was in the house that first day, they couldn't eat or drink. But when they got the body out, then they could eat. The friends would prepare the food, and they would come back and have a, a meal. And then the friends would stay in there and support them during that seven days. Then for 30 days after that, seven days, you would have a time of light mourning. So you just, you had a long period of mourning after a person died back then. This family was apparently very prominent because of the crowd who was there. All right, Martha said, goes out to meet Jesus. Martha said to Jesus, if... How many times do we say if? If only. If only. You know, if only I'd done this. If only he'd done that. If only we'd done this. If only this had been. Isn't that what we always say? They're no different. If you had been here, sir, Lord, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will grant you. And so what she says here is half protest and half faith. You know, that's about where most of us are. No matter where we get, we still, our faith is still so cluttered up with protest or ifs and onlys and buts and whatevers and all this kind of stuff until we, our faith doesn't have a chance to be exercised like it should because of the human entering into it. She says, if you'd been here, sir, my brother would not have died. So that was, that could be a protest according to how she said it. You know, or it could be, I know you could have done something if you were here, whichever way you want to look at it. But then she said, now, no, now that if you ask God, you know, something miraculous can happen even now. She had that much faith. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. But she didn't understand. She's here again. She didn't understand what, your brother will rise again. And, and she had just said, I know that whatever you ask, God will grant it. Your brother will rise again. I, I know that he will rise again, Martha says, at the resurrection on the last day. How far they had come from the Old Testament view. They had, we're studying in Job on Sunday mornings. They had very little kind. Job was one of the first ones to come along and give some insight into the fact that there was something beyond death. All right, she says, I know that he's going to rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Another one of his great I am's. I am the resurrection. It's no it. The resurrection isn't an it. Is that some it out here in the future? I am the resurrection, Jesus said, living eternally alive. Eternally the resurrection is what he's saying. It's not an it. You've got to believe in me. You've got to trust in me. Not in a day out here. Not in an it. If a man has faith in me, even though he die, he shall come to life. And no one who's alive and has faith shall ever die. 
so much included in that. Here again is the, the bold statement that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the resurrection, the life in Jesus, you will never die spiritually. You will die a physical death. You will never die spiritually. And those, if Jesus should come today, this is the marvel of it all. This is what he went on to say. And those who are alive and have faith will never die. If Jesus should come today, I will never experience physical death. See? I'll just be raptured on up and I'll never experience physical death. So some will never die. Those who are alive when he comes will never die. But the faith in me, in the person of Jesus, not in a church, not in a tradition, not in family heritage, not in anything like that, but in the Lord Jesus Christ is what's going to cause you to live and never die spiritually. You will live on. That takes the sting out of death. Since I've been born again and I've understood that concept and that truth, I have never fallen apart at the seams, no matter how close the person who was to me who died. Because I know they didn't die. Look at a corpse sometime. It's, it's not at all like the person. It's not life in there. That's just an old body you had while you weren't worth much anyway. But the soul will never die. And the soul that's committed to Jesus Christ will live with him forever and ever, absent in a second, in a split second, be with the Lord. So I cannot imagine why, except for the loneliness that we experience, I cannot imagine why people would not rejoice, rejoice when a child of God ceases the active life on this earth and just goes right into a deeper life, a deeper life with him. It takes the sting out of death. Death, where's that sting? That's what it has over Lazarus' death, over Lazarus' tomb. And he says, she says, and she makes this great confession right in the midst of this, and I think this confession is, is greater than Peter's. We hear about Peter's confession all the time. Peter's confession was made on a mountaintop. Her confession was made in the very midst of, of depression and circumstances that were beyond what she could understand and she said he said do you believe this to her and she said Lord I do I now believe that you are the Messiah the Son of God who's come into the world it's the same confession that Peter made and yet hers was made in the valley and his was made on the mountaintop so hers was even greater than that I want to share one thing with you, and then we're going to have to stop. We'll take up where Mary uh, comes in next, and you'll see her reaction, what happened. But I want to share with you something that, you know, it's amazing to me how the Lord always gives me an interesting little tidbit for almost every lesson, whether it's on Sunday morning or Tuesday morning. But this one was so interesting, I can't keep it to myself. Yesterday, my sister called, and she's a really big one for digging into family trees. And we've been telling her for a long time, we wish she'd leave that family tree alone, because she keeps digging up things you would just as soon left, be left down in the roots, you know, somewhere under the surface and never dug up. Well, she called yesterday, and you won't believe this, but in last Sunday's Jackson paper, Jackson, Mississippi, and, and a few months ago, there was another article, and there was a man named Ephraim Woods. That was my maiden name. Ephraim Woods, uh, buried outside Mount Holly, and his grave was built up. There was this grave built up like a mound on top of the ground, you know. And so they got so curious to find out who this man was and why this thing was built up like this, they started investigating. And Jane found out that, that my, grand, my father's father, had his father's name was Abram, and his father's name was Ephraim. Good old Bible names. And so with all of this, and she knew that Ephraim was buried outside Mount Holly. So when this came out in the paper, she just went banana. She just got so excited, she started investigating the whole thing. And last Sunday, would you believe the explanation of what happened was in the paper. Great-great-grandfather Ephraim 
said he wanted to, when he was buried, he said, when I die, I want to be buried standing up. <laughs> Great grandfather Abel is standing up. And he said, <laughs> he said, uh, he said, now I don't want to be beholding to anybody. I've never been beholding to anybody. And so <laughs> he said, oh, <laughs> she didn't quit this. I don't know what we're going to do. He said, I want my slaves to bring bricks and dirt from my own land. He didn't even want the dirt in his ground to be borrowed dirt. So he really believed in that, oh, no, no, no man, anything scripture, I think. And so he had them bring in all the dirt and the bricks, and they made this thing so he could be buried standing up. And his reason for this was that when his Savior came at the resurrection day, he didn't want to take the time to, <laughs> 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 to, have to sit up or stand up or <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was hysterical. I said, Jane, you won't believe it. But I'm, I'm teaching on the resurrection. <laughs> and grand, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather Ephraim, it was prepared. Man, he was so ready. He didn't understand the thing. He didn't understand it. It's all going to be in an instant. And that body's already decayed after all these years anyway. And it doesn't matter whether you're standing or sitting or lying or <laughs> whatever you're doing. He's not going to get there any quicker than anything. <laughs>